name's Angela Murphy and um, I'm from Leeds Beckett University. Um, originally I was an occupational therapist, I am an occupational therapist and um, I think one of the things or one of the reasons that I became interested in the possible selves theoretical framework is that as an occupational therapist we, um, we very much help people to imagine um, who they might become or who they could be in the future. Um, and my practice history is working with people with chronic fatigue syndrome um, or within liaison psychiatry and within neurology. So it was very much my kind of um, practice work was very much about helping people to begin to imagine what type of life they could have living with the condition they were living with, whether this was chronic fatigue syndrome or MS or stroke or something like that. Um, so... While I'm kind of coming from um, the perspective of, of, of thinking about the possible selves framework, I'm also coming from the perspective of a lifetime of kind of, or it feels like a lifetime of being an occupational therapist and coming from an occupational perspective as well, where we very much focus on the doing of every day and the importance of that doing and the being within that kind of existence of doing and the participation. Um, as well as where that takes us, so the becoming. So that's very central to how occupational therapists work, as in becoming um, the people that we want to become. So very much kind of fitting into this kind of concept around who we sit, how we see ourselves and how we use identity and how occupational therapists help people to, uh, to change their identities in a way that is meaningful and purposeful to them, obviously not directed by us but supported by us. So um, I started my um, educational, uh, my professional doctorate um, three years ago, and um, oh, we've moved on. Didn't mean to do that. Very luckily, um, I am supervised by Jacqueline Stevenson, who I think introduced me to the concept of possible selves. I'm also um, I'm supervised by Dr. Caroline Bly as well. So moving on, my research question came from. Um, a personal experience and a professional experience. So I have a daughter with dyslexia, um, I have a professional background as an occupational therapist, and I'm now a tutor at Leeds Beckett University, been there for six years, and we have lots of students on our course with dyslexia. So I had this kind of dichotomy or this discrepancy that happened in my life where my daughter, right with the button, started school, could not read, could not remember the letters, they meant absolutely nothing to her, um, and the support was absolutely appalling and atrocious and discriminatory and very, very negative for, for her and for me. Sorry, I mustn't, mustn't veer too far, otherwise I'll, I'll spring back. Um, and yet, we had all of these students with dyslexia on this M-level occupational therapy course. So... Um, that was kind of where my, the idea for this research kind of stemmed really. It's, it was about, well, if the system is like this, and these pupils in these schools, because I know my daughter is not the only child with dyslexia having this, this problem, um, is like, you know, if the system is like this, then how come so many people are actually doing so well in life with dyslexia? Um, and which is where the kind of, my whole research question has kind of stem from really, this kind of dichotomy that we've got in our society. So my actual question is, what influences the occupational potential and the possible sounds in healthcare students with dyslexia? So I've interviewed um, 
nine students with dyslexia three times. So there's a very kind of temporal nature to the interviews, looking at the past, present and future. Although, because it was narrative that I was using, obviously there was no kind of staying in the present or staying in the past or staying focused on the future within the, within the narratives. It was very kind of uh, retrospective sometimes, but then projected to the future at other times. Um, and my, um, my, the age range was very diverse, really. So we've got students um, aged 24 all the way through to kind of 46, and um, on three different healthcare courses, so occupational therapy uh, mostly, but then physiotherapy and the osteopathy as well. Um, most of the participants were from a very kind of middle class background, but there was one participant from what she described as a working class background, and she had a single, um, a single parent family. Um, all were brought up in England, but from every corner of England, um, and just kind of happened to be in Leeds for various reasons. Sorry, I said I shouldn't have disclosed the, the place, but you were guest Leeds anyway, haven't we also had some um, first and family university students involved in study as well. And my kind of first level of inquiry has very much been narrative. And, and I found that narrative has fitted perfectly, partly because of who I am as a researcher and who I am as an occupational therapist, because I've used narrative very much in my practice. I use it very much in my teaching. And it fitted perfectly into, um, into how I wanted to hear the stories of these participants. I really wanted to shine a light on what were these people's experiences and very much accept this, this, the double hermeneutic of the process of them interpreting what they were saying as they were saying it because many of the things that they talked about they hadn't even thought about. They, they had, you know, it was very, I could see quite often it was the very first time they'd even contemplated this issue around their dyslexia and, and how this linked to who they were as a person and what this meant to their childhoods, but also to their futures as well, and also to who they, they are now. Um, and as part of the narrative inquiry process, I've used narrative inquiry to analyse the, the narratives as I was, um, you know, as I transcribed, but then interpreted as well. But then as a kind of additional layer, I've used possible selves. So, um, and I'm using now possible selves very much in a a very kind of structured way as far as um, I'm writing up my thesis. I've written, well, I think I've got one draft of a chapter, but we, we haven't discussed it yet, so I'll keep quiet about that. <laughs> 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 um, so, um, so, I've read it. Uh, yeah, all right, okay. <laughs> right. Oh, that's good, thank you. Um, so, uh, so I'm writing half of the chapter of, of the data for each data chapter as a play and half as a very tight, hopefully, analysis, okay. So it's a very, to me it's a very different way of writing what I expected to write, how I expected to write, write my thesis. And it's come from my desire to be creative within my thesis, but also from this very sort of innate need that I, that, that I have and that comes through in my research about really shining light on these people's experiences, um, which has been very kind of gratifying as you know as a researcher while I've been doing it um, so hopefully that sets the stage a little bit for what we're going to be talking about today so the, obviously the very influential concepts within possible selves are many but I've kind of 
pulled out a few of the concepts that I think ha are very influential at the moment. Obviously, the Marcus and Neurises um, work in, the, in 1986. And still, what I'm finding is every time I read that work, I'm finding new things that, that is that kind of informing how I'm interpreting my, uh, my particip participants' stories. Very, very influential is um, Oyserman's work around roadmaps, but also around um, countervailing selves and how, how um, the participants have kind of used their experiences almost as a springboard. So yes, there are lots of, lots of different types of experiences within their stories, but actually how they use that to build their resilience and how they use it to move forward and how that's been very much part of how they've actually got to where they've got today. Um, also within this, um, I'm very interested in the self-initiated actions that the Possible Self Literature talks about, which in my mind is the occupations, this part about what we do, influencing who we are and how we are and what we become in the future. And I'm kind of, um, I'm thinking that quite a lot of the time, um, there's, you know, I don't think people always do have a very strong concept of who they will be in the future. I think a lot of people actually think, well, I'm doing this because I'm doing this because I like it or because so-and-so said to do it or my friend's doing it. I think, you know, I think a lot of people end up in situations where actually it wasn't part of their life plan, it wasn't part of their roadmap, um, and, and I think, but, I, but that leads to them being and becoming their possible selves and possibly leads to developing possible selves. So, for example, I suppose once you're on a course, uh, for example, I was once a graphic designer, I qualified as a graphic designer, but actually, I was never. I didn't really do the graphic designer thing because I didn't fit in a male-dominated, very sort of um, very commercial world. I, it, it was just not quite right for me. So it never actually that possible self was very vague for me. It never actually happened. Um, and I think a lot of a, a lot of people actually kind of are on that type of track as well. But that's probably an idea for more research, I would guess, really. Um, and also, the, I'm also interested in um, some of Jacqueline's work around how people um, perceive their possible selves and how congruent these are with their past selves and their social situations and their personal identities and their social identities and how these things come together um, and, and work together to help somebody to sort of project their ideas for the future. So I'm not sure if um, everyone in the room knows about dyslexia and, um, and what it is, but I just thought it would be helpful just to have a quick slide on just the, the very basics. So I think, um, importantly, always really, really vital to recognise that no two people with dyslexia are exactly the same. Um, everyone's unique. Quite often people have reading um, difficulties with reading, but it might be from a comprehension point of view or it might be from a decoding point of view. Um, Quite often, writing is also implicated. Um, very often, processing skills are, um, are, are different. They might be slower, or they might be um, more complex. Um, and working, and sorry, memory. So working memory, short-term memory, and long-term memory, which uh, combined with the processing skills, combined with the difficulties with reading, it's the, the, you know, all these things are kind of working in all together, I guess, really. Um, quite often people talk about difficulties with organisation. 
quite often people have difficulties with numbers and with maths, but not everyone does. Um, and I think really importantly, and really I think what is a very fascinating part of my study, um, is this aspect to intelligence. And I think there's a lot of judgment around intelligence, and I think what intelligence means within our society is absolutely fascinating. Um, and how, we, how it's used hierarchically within our society, um, and how, you know, how, so, so how the students have judged themselves and their own intelligence very much comes through in my um, research. Um, and obviously it's invisible. You can't see it. You can't look at someone and think, oh yes, you're dyslexic. Although I now think that as soon as when a student's been in my um, tutorial for five minutes, I'm very good at thinking, oh, I wonder if that person's dyslexic. Usually I am right, but quite often I'm not, so that's fine. Um, it's very easily misinterpreted. You know, you hear, you hear, I, even I, here in my office, which is an open plan office where everyone knows that I'm studying dyslexia, even I hear very judgmental comments about a student with dyslexia. We hear this, we hear that. Um, and I think, you know, this kind of, this judgment, judgmental attitude is there, it's prevalent and, you know, it's certainly not swept under the carpet. It's, it's part of our society and how, as, and, how we think as a society. So um, the literature, there's lots of literature on dyslexia. You can look, you can come at it from lots of different <coughs> perspectives. Um, there's, McDonald's done some really good work um, and particularly found that people from lower socioeconomic groups do less well in our society. There are lots of people um, in prison, for example, with dyslexia. And as you can see from the stats, they're very vague, so it ranges between 20% and 51%. Well, I think really they should, we should be a bit firmer and we should know really specifically the details. I kind of wonder whether actually part of the discrepancy there is around the fact that we don't have screening in schools. Therefore, you know, who knows how many more offenders might have dyslexia? Who knows how many you know, people in prison have dyslexia? Because actually they probably haven't been assessed, the majority of them, in the first place. Um, there's a real um, issue around labelling, so lots of schools don't believe in labelling, lots of teachers don't believe in labelling, lots of educational psychologists don't believe in labelling. People go for assessments to, you know, thinking, I think I'm dyslexic, and they're told, oh yes, you've got a specific learning disability, meaning absolutely nothing to that person who's never heard of a specific learning disability. And actually, what, they, what the educational psychologist is meaning is, we've got, we've got dyslexia. Well, I've heard of people having to go back and say, what does this actually mean? Um, and being told, well, um, it would say if it wasn't dyslexia. What? No, it should say if it is. Thank you. You know, it's, it's a very, the, the diagnostic criteria is very vague. It varies depending on where you are. So it's a minefield. Um, and... Collinson's done some fantastic work around um, our kind of society and the fact that society is dominated by uh, people who value, we highly value literacy skills, don't we? But this, there's a real kind of um, discrepancy between how we kind of judge people who haven't got these literacy skills and, um, and how we treat people who haven't got these literacy skills and what that actually means and how that, those judgments happen. Um, also, Kerr did a study in, the, um, in 2001, which was quite a small study, but he found that um, teachers 
had lower expectations of the students that had the label dyslexia, which is why a lot of the psychologists don't want to label people with dyslexia, or why a lot of teachers don't like to label people with dyslexia. So there's a, you know, there's a, there's a reason for all of this kind of complicated um, of, of, you know, um, view of how dyslexia has kind of evolved. And then Elliot and Elliot and Gregorenko talk about the dyslexia debate. So there's a real discrepancy about, well, um, they kind of say that dyslexia is a socially constructed myth. Well, lots of things are socially constructed myths. It doesn't mean they don't exist. Um, there, are, there, are, there are also quite big studies um, that look into the biological explanation of dyslexia. And we know about neuroplasticity, so that we know that the, the brain changes. Um, and we know that lots of things help, so there isn't really, you know, as far as I can see, a problem as far as what we need to do. We need to help put somebody work out whether they've got dyslexia, put the support in place, and, you know, let them reach their potential. It's a no-brainer, isn't it? You would think. Um, however, we have got um, a system where parents have to fight to get any support for their children, uh, loads of children are not screened and don't, you know, don't know whether they've got dyslexia or not. Um, lots of people are diagnosed as adults, and um, despite all of this, we are now having lots more and more people in higher education with dyslexia. So somehow, people are negotiating all the way through this and actually managing to get to higher education, which is fantastic. But what do we do with them when we get there? That's the other question. So, um, so the chapter that I've kind of just written is mainly based on um, the incongruent social and personal identities um, and perceptions of possible selves. So, we, so I just want to kind of talk you through how I, how I've found this um, this concept and and how that's kind of ground, grounded in my data. So these are some of the students, obviously pseudonyms are used, and um, I'm going to be talking about Rebecca and Kelly first, and then on to Jojo, Abigail and Maria. So Rebecca was diagnosed when she was seven, and um, she told me, most of my participants, because they knew they had information about the study, they knew what the study was about, most of them started their stories around about the diagnostic kind of part of their lives. Um, although this did vary from participant to participant. Um, so Rebecca said that she, um, she felt that going through the process when she was seven made her feel different. Um, she felt like it took ages to do stuff and um, made her feel a bit thick, really. So straight away, even at the age of seven, this kind of process of being othered in her school setting um, and, the, and almost kind of the, the shining a light on what she was doing that was different and, um, you know, made her think about, I guess, what we think about from Neuri Marcus and Neuris's work around the ideal self and the, the real self. Um, in that kind of discrepancy beginning, even at such a young age, is, you know, I find quite poignant, really. Um, and still, even though she's doing an M-level course now, still says it's the part of her that's thick. So very judgmental about herself very kind of lacking in confidence as an M little student earlier on in the interviews. This changed as she progressed through to interview three, where because she started to pass uh, modules, 
her confidence was starting to come up. So it did start to change, but this, this kind of concept of it's still there, it's still the part of me that's thick, persisted all the way through the interviews. Uh, what I meant to say as well was, um, what was fascinating was because it was three interviews and they were quite spread out um, across a year, some students had very sort of clear possible selves focused on qualifying in their chosen profession. Um, and as the interviews progressed, the possible selves were achieved as we were moving through from one interview to the next to the next. Um, and so this kind of temporal nature of the research is, is, is also a fascinating part because there, obviously their new possible self needed to start develop, but such a big focus was on actual, actually qualifying and become, becoming a you know, qualified um, therapist. Um, that be, looking beyond that was actually quite difficult for a lot of the students. So when I asked um, Rebecca if she did A-levels, she said no, um, and that she went to do beauty therapy, uh, but that was a mistake, and the only reason she did that was because she thought it was the thing that she could do and that she couldn't do anything else, which I think is quite important. And, you know, I do kind of accept that lots of students will leave school and move on to something that they don't really know is the right direction for them. Um, I think for Rebecca, it was particularly difficult because she was, she was feeling invisible in the classroom. She felt very kind of, um, very marginalised and in, in, put in lower sets and placed with, the, um, with disruptive children so that her needs were never really addressed, her needs were never kind of um, taken care of, but not even just that, it was a case of being othered. She was very different from the children in, these, in, these, in the classes that she went through school with, if that makes any sense. So she was, she was othered by being placed in the lower sets, and her friends were in the other sets, and, um, and also almost marginalised because the attention was going to this, the children who kind of knew how to behave to get the attention and that wasn't her, that wasn't who she was as a person so there's very much kind of, um, kind of sense of who she is as a person and not always I am this type of person but very much I'm not that type of person and being able to kind of stay within you know, the, the realms of how her parents are bringing her up and not moving into actually I'll be like that because I'm with people like you. Um, Alison talks about group-based identities, um, which is very much, I think, linking into this concept of learned helplessness, where judgments are made, um, which may be discriminatory and, um, and w will influence the possible selves of someone like Rebecca. So Kelly... I guess the main kind of concept that comes from Kelly's um, transcripts was around university just not being for her, okay? And she comes from a family where all of her cousins and her siblings were aiming for university, but it wasn't for her. So she says, um, she, told, she told me about a year six teacher telling her mum that she was never going to get to university because she's not the cleverest child. Um, and luckily her parents didn't tell her that but what is very nuanced in her um, narrative is her parents didn't tell her that but they didn't encourage her to go to university either so their, you know, their expectations were very, um, were very carefully managed because I, I can only make assumptions and I, you know, double, this is double hermeneutics and, and I, 
I'd love to interview more parents actually to get their perspective. Um, we, I can't really get, I, I can guess, but I've got to try not to guess what those reasons would have been as far as how they kind of managed that. They encouraged and they supported, but they didn't want to push it too far because they didn't know what was realistic to expect. And maybe that's about their society, or maybe it's about their judgments of her. We don't know these things. Anyway, she talked about how she really struggled with exams. Again, she was very like Rebecca, so she was put with the naughty people as such. So my learning was a little bit disrupted really throughout school. That's all the way through school. Um, she got 10 GCSEs. No one spoke to her about university. No one spoke to her about A-levels. What's going on? I don't know. She's one of the best students I've ever had. She's fantastic. Anyway, um, so yeah, this made me kind of think about Oysterman's, um, you know, again, the group-based identity, but also how this was internalised by Kelly as far as this isn't, that, that's for my sister, university's for my sister, it's for my cousins, it's not for me, and how that group-based um, identity was applied. At this point, she didn't even know she had dyslexia, so it wasn't that the label was there, it was much more based on kind of the judgments of her intelligence. She got the diagnosis of dyslexia when she was an undergraduate student. Um, I think she got first for undergraduate degrees, as did Rebecca. So one finding is this kind of discrepancy between the, the schools, the high value of literacy and numeracy, um, no screening in place. Um, and feeling invisible at school and feeling that that kind of marginalisation is happening. Um, you know, they're not problem children, they're very easily ignored. Um, however, they've got this counterbalance of supportive families who've helped them and supported them to, um, to carry on with, you know, their, 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 again, their group-based identity, really, of where they're coming from. But they've got these discrepancies between their social and personal identities. So... For them to have a very concrete identity is, has been very difficult for them because they've got these discrepancies coming from their social worlds, um, leading to very incongruent future possible selves. So both of these students went on to further education. Um, Kelly did childcare and Rebecca did beauty therapy. And both of them went on from that to do undergraduate degrees and then from that to do master's degrees. So I think again, Oysterman's quote here about um, where possible selves feel congruent with social identity, relevant strategies are cued into context. But I think what's interesting in my research is these strategies were, they stayed in context for these students. They didn't give in, they didn't give up, they carried on. So even though they were working twice as hard as, as their peers and they were receiving, you know, so um, particularly Rebecca, well actually Rebecca and Kelly, both talked of, I work twice as hard as my brother or my sister, and yet they get this mark and I just get this mark. And this has been all the way through their, their educational careers. And yet they didn't give in, and yet they persevered. And, um, you know, now put themselves on the back and they can congratulate themselves and think, well, actually, I'm, I am now doing well, which is great. Oh, can't see that, can you? Um, so on to Jojo, Abigail and Maria, where... Um, diagnosis was very much a turning point um, within their kind of um, their possible selves and who they imagined they would become in fairly different ways. But okay, 
explain that. I'm wondering how I'm doing for time. Not well. Um, so Jojo was diagnosed again in her undergraduate degree. So I'll just um, take you to. So she she had she had a habit of telling herself that she wasn't too good. So yeah, I'll let you interpret the stars herself. So she had. Um, so she was saying, if you constantly say I'm brilliant and can do anything, you can always fail. But if you tell yourself you're a bit, you can't fail because you're a bit. S-H-I-T. So, so this, by doing this, she was keeping herself, she was protecting herself from the dreaded fail, which, um, not, and not that she'd ever actually really failed because she actually followed the the footsteps of her sisters and did very well at, at school and then went on to do an undergrad um, at degree at university but then had a very very difficult time and and I think I think what she's talking about is really that she found her undergraduate degree so difficult that she needed to protect herself from 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 having two um, ambitious possible selves really And then for her there was a real discrepancy in her identity when she was finally told that she had dyslexia and this, um, this kind of this discourse around how she perceived people with dyslexia to be compared to how she perceived herself, there was a real mismatch and a real incongruence in, in her kind of self-perception and her identity and other people with dyslexia. Um, okay, thank you. Um, so she's talking about she didn't she thought I'm just not very academic I didn't I didn't doubt I was bright I just didn't think I was bright in the way that fit the mold and I think for her this is a very kind of poignant point really her sister's a surgeon she's a very bright girl but she always had this 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 kind of competition with the people around her um, and you know she did brilliantly um, but it was never going to be. I think it felt for her it was never going to be enough or kind of comparable to what her sister managed to achieve. Um, I think this is quite a poignant here that the labels and the parameters of yourself kind of shift completely. So it's only yourself that stops yourself because you're the one who puts those parameters and boundaries of how it's going to be and how you do how you're going to do things. And then I got the diagnosis and I was like, oh well, okay, so maybe that's not true and I could do more stuff. So the diagnosis for her made her actually think, actually, I am more academic than I think. I am, I am more intelligent than I think I am. I could actually go further and do more in my life. I don't, that's just, um, so she was sabotaging. She was, um, she was self-sabotaging. It was very difficult to accept the diagnosis. Um, but despite that, that difficulty that she had, accepting it as part of herself, um, she still used it as a platform to propel herself off into new possible selves and, result, and the result of that was that she arrived on our um, occupational therapy course. So then we've got Abigail who um, on the first day of reception sat down with the girl and said, I read your story. So the teachers went to her mum and said, your child's a genius. Um, and so she'd fooled the teachers into thinking that she could read. Um, she said, I was convinced I was really clever. And what strikes me is, she compared, she, she, um, she counteracts that with the teacher soon found out I wasn't a genius. Well, actually, so even as she's kind of talking, she's saying, so I thought I was this, I thought I was really clever, but I wasn't really clever. But actually, she is really clever. 
So this kind of very, very kind of internalized judgment of her own intelligence, because as a result of the dyslexia and as a result of the label, um, anyway, she was humiliated as a child. So I think what's really interesting is, is that because of the way she, her intelligence was judged um, against you know literacy and numeracy standards, then she was given the message: No, you're not like this. You're like this. And no, you're not, you know, you're not the type of child who will propel off and, and get to university or do, you know, these amazing things. You're this type of child. So, okay, thank you. So as she was growing up, she talked about um, that she had two sisters. So one was beauty, one was, one was brains, and she was brawn. How poignant is that? Um, but she secretly thought, well, I'm kind of pretty, and I know I'm intelligent, and I know I know my stuff, but because I see things differently, people don't think I'm clever. And when I got this diagnosed, it was like, ah, that's why. Which I think is really, really poignant. And again, I think really, really fed into her new concepts, self-concepts about what she could become and who she could become. And again was, and I think one of the things is because dyslexia is well known about and within our society, we have all these judgments, but we've also got a very kind of clear role models within our society with people like Richard Branson and, you know, Einstein and things like this. So we've got this real discrepancy, haven't we? Um, but it kind of, again, it propelled her off to new things. Now, so Maria, she talked about um, she was bullied. One minute. Um, she was bullied. She thought, I'm not going to be like you. I'm going to do something with my life. And she, she used that to work really hard and, again, use this to, to, as, as a counteract, to counteract and countervail her projection in life. So you can see how we've got um, these discrepancies between the, um, the home life, the school life, easily ignored, confused personal identities, needing to incongruent future possible selves, but they all carried on. So in answer to my question of how, you know, what influences these people's possible selves and occupational potential. They all carried on with their studies. They all show elements of resilience, of an ability to project and understand themselves, but develop possible selves. And also kind of bring, coming back to um, the kind of mutability of self and the changeability of self and um, that Marcus and Nereus talk about, leading to much more congruent and much more elaborately perceived possible selves. And that's my completion, <laughs> which is basically everything I've just said.